the Ten Commandments say, you are awful. Or at least you don't measure up to what God requires. And why is God so mean to require such incredible things from us? Why, would he, why can't he just lower his standards a little bit so that we just have to be a little better than Hitler? Right? Well, because God is perfect. God is holy. God can't change his standards because he would be changing who he is, and that's impossible. So in order for a perfect God to let you into a perfect heaven, you have to be perfect. But we're not, so we have this big problem that Jesus fixes for us when he dies on the cross, and he takes our imperfect life, and he implants into us his perfect life, the great exchange where we become, in Christ, perfect. And that's just a wonderful thing. That's why we go to church. That's why we sing songs. That's why we're just overjoyed with what God has given to us. So again, why study the Ten Commandments? Because it shows what a perfect life looks like. It shows where, where the Holy Spirit will enable us to do, where he's leading us. The first commandment we studied last week, can you remember what it is? You shall have no other gods, right? 50 Jesus points for Isaac. <laughs> so, it is no other gods. He, God said, you can't have any other gods. You can't trust anything but me. You can't do any. You can't do what anyone says except what I say. I am your God. You have to listen to me and obey me in everything. And we fail. We fail to do that. And so God, he gives Jesus. And when we surrender to Jesus, Jesus fills us with a new heart that wants to have no other gods. We're casting off gods left and right because we love Jesus so much because of this new heart he's given us in the Holy Spirit. So all of that is just a review of what we studied last week. Okay? We are starting new now. People have produced some amazing things. What's the best album you've ever heard? Shout out. What's your favorite album? <laughs> okay. So. All right. All right. <laughs> okay. That was not what I expected, but I thought someone would say, like, Jay-Z or something. I don't know. Just kidding. People have created some amazing music. You know, we, people have made cars. People have made cell phones. You know, your computer, your computer in your pocket, your cell phone is like one of the greatest things ever made. Cameras, you know, robots. They're going to take over the world soon, you know. We got paper is a great invention. I mean, this is, this is a technology uh, you got uh, TV, you got Wi-Fi. We're all using Wi-Fi right now. Batteries, wheels, and planes, boats, clocks, pencils. All of these are great things that men have made. I think we discovered fire, but either way. The printing press. Not to mention all the art that people have produced, like paintings and sculptures and murals and buildings and parks and musical instruments and... and uh, 
Then there's all the music and literature that people have combined, all the poems and songs and movies and plays. And I could go on listing all the things men have made. Uh, but what do all these things have in common? It's very simple. They were all made by men. So there's your hashtag man made right there for the today's sermon. Some men were inspired by nature. Some men were inspired by greed. Some men were inspired by the club they were at. Some men were inspired by God himself. But every one of these things was made by flesh and blood. None of them descended from heaven. Contrary to popular belief. They all have their flaws. They all have their problems. And they can all be worshipped because men can choose to love them. When you choose to love something, you are making a choice to enter into worship of that thing. Men can idolize these things. The reason that we do that is because these things have an, are an image of something that is cool or, or good, something that is really good. And, and they perform a function or they contain a certain beauty that we as people, we recognize that is good music or that is good art or, I, you know, that is, this is a good tool. This cell phone is a good thing for me to use. And we recognize that. And so it becomes praiseworthy. We start to talk about, dude, my cell phone is so awesome. This album is so good. And so we're praising that thing. And I'm not saying that that in itself is the idolatry. I mean, I talk about in and out and I love it. It's good, right? But I don't want to, I'm not praising it. Chick-fil-A, that'll come back later. We get focused on this one attribute that is really good about this thing and we honor it and then we begin to idolize it. We get excited about it and then pretty soon we're bowing down in reverence and we're serving this thing. We're spending our time at talking about them. We're spending our money to get more of them. We're spending our life wanting what we can't afford. And this is where the second commandment comes in. Let's read it. It's Exodus chapter 20. Verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commands. Again, the first commandment told us who we were to worship. It said, have no other gods except Yahweh, right? This one tells us how we're to engage in that worship. Man is forbidden from making any visible representation of God or what we call a man-made idol, okay? This is not a law against making art, actually, or making songs or making stories about angels or anything like that. It's prohibiting the use of anything to represent God as an image, Because when we use something to represent God, to be an image of God, we worship and serve something made by a man. 
No matter what the thing is, if we're, if we're going to use something to represent God, that thing was made by a man. And worship must not, this is what this law says, this commandment, must not be connected with things made by flesh. It can't be connected to that. Worship of God must not merely be an interaction with something you can see and something you can understand. Worship cannot be dependent on a thing or an object or an image other than God himself. And God is where? He's invisible. I can't see him. He is invisible. He is a spirit. He's in heaven. And he wants it he wants to keep it that way. He wants us to understand that when we come in here, it is not about what we see. You know, we can break this command when we do things like, you can only worship God in this place. Or with this song. Or when we start thinking, I can only do it with these instruments or wearing these type of clothes. If I put my collar on backwards, that's what God loves. Or I like worshiping God when I see that picture or this sculpture or that stained glass or this cool sound system or on my cell phone or the building of the church, all these things, they are not God. He's invisible. Angels or animals. Some people like, I guess, having angels involved in their worship. They like pictures of angels. And even beautiful things in nature or in heaven can take your attention away from God himself. Instead, we're required to worship God in spirit and in truth. Have you guys heard that phrase before? Of course you have, right? In faith and not with things that we can sense like art and images. The point here, the reason why this command is here, is to keep us from becoming religious. To remove all fakeness from our relationship with God. All imitation. Well, I don't know how this whole worshiping God thing is supposed to work, but I see how they do it, and they, they go like this. So I'm going to go like this. That's imitation. It, 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 this command is removing all ability to latch on to something other than God himself. In the spirit, in the invisible realm that's all around us. He wants us to go into that invisible realm every day and connect with him. And if you have limits on that, if you have things that you have to have to do that, then you're not doing it the right way. Let's say you go to jail. Let's say North Korea invades us and conquers us today. Could happen. Who knows? And they make it illegal and we all go to jail for being Christians. And they take away all our Bibles and they take away all our churches. Is that going to affect us in any way in our connecting with God? It won't, right? But for a lot of people, they'll feel disconnected with God because they don't have their church anymore. And they don't have their, their things anymore that they use in their connecting with God. So we can't have these things as a barrier between us and God, these, these idols. 
He says here he, that he's a jealous God. Now, does that make you recoil back and like, wait a second, I thought jealousy was a bad thing, right? Well, it's better, in, in our modern English, it would be better translated zealous. Do you know the difference between jealous and zealous? Jealous conjures up the idea of an inappropriate jealousness where zealous means he is just passionate for you. He's very passionate for you. And he will not allow you to be cheated out of knowing who he really is. He is not a chicken. He is not a chicken. Did you know that? Even though the Bible says he has wings and covers up his people like, like under the shadow of his wings. Did you know that? That's called an anthropomorphism, right? It's giving an attribute to God, but we don't, we don't invite chickens into our church. We don't bring thousands of chickens in here and use them every Sunday to speak to us as we sing songs of the great chicken God. We're not doing this, unless it's Chick-fil-A, of course, which is a great communion idea, actually. Could you imagine? Oh, you stole my punchline. I was going to get there. Oh, it would be such a good idea, but it's closed on Sunday. Maybe we could order it on Saturday and it would last through Sunday like the manna. <laughs> we'll, we'll work on that. We'll see if God's down for that. Well, God is passionate about you knowing who, him the way he truly is, and he is not like anything in this world. He's not the picture. Picture in your mind, what does Jesus look like right now? You're wrong. It's not what he looked like. What does God look like? God, stop. He's not like that. He's not. And he refuses to let that be a barrier between you knowing him as he is, okay? He wants you to know the truth about him, but the truth about him is not something that you can touch and see. I, I, was, I woke up this morning with a song in my head. It's that I can only imagine what it would be like you know, and I think it talks about like seeing God or touching him or something like that. No, don't do that. Yes, there will come a day when we will see God as he is, but that is not for this reality that we have right now. We can know him in a perfect sense, but we, it's not about what we can sense. It's not about what we see or feel or touch. He is a spirit. Can I touch your spirit? Can I walk up to you and be like, ooh, let me touch your spirit? <laughs> He's touching my spirit. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. No, he is invisible. He's a spirit. He's not part of this creation. He's over this creation, okay? So he's the creator. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, he says... Um, and the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of a fire, and you heard the sound of the words, but you saw no form. You heard only a voice. A spirit has no form, but he has a voice. So I got a question for you guys. Do you look for an interaction with God where you can sense something or feel something, or would you be satisfied with just hearing his voice, hearing his word? Would you be satisfied with just the word? Or do you, are you looking for something more? 
God says, don't, don't look for something more. Be satisfied with hearing my voice. It would be nice if we could guarantee feelings and, and magic fireworks and, and, you know, that's what this world offers. You go to a movie and you're probably guaranteed to see something. And you might probably feel something. Hit you right in the feels, right? The world can guarantee those things. And it's easy to keep going back again and again for that guaranteed stimulation. Yeah, I know going to a movie is going to be fun. Listening to that song, yeah, gets me. But going to church doesn't guarantee that. And if I were to to try to manipulate it so that it always did provide that, I am breaking this commandment. Because God says, I am not visible. I can give you feelings, but I don't have to. I want you to believe my word and trust my word. That's where we're going. Because I'm a spirit, my word is the way that we connect to each other. God cannot be put in that kind of a box. He is a spirit. He's above this creation. Nothing we create will guarantee a meeting with God. No location. If you go to the Vatican, there's no guarantee God's going to meet you there. In fact, he's not there anymore. Um, you can, Sorry. Uh, you can go to, you, you, maybe this, a song, you, you just love this song, and you, every time you hear the song, you're like, oh, God meets with me, and we talk, and we dance, and, and, and God's, that's not a guarantee that God is going to meet you there. And it's certainly not guaranteed that if you put in some sort of special effort or special work that God is going to meet with you. So what is guaranteed? Well, nothing we create will make our relationship with God more real or more better in any way. Nothing we create, nothing we do can make it better. God always meets me at that church. God always meets me when I'm in that city or when I sing that song or when I read that book. God will accept me when I do fill in the blank. God will accept me and meet with me when I wear these type of clothes. Or when I move my fingers like this. Or when I bow down like that. Or when I close my eyes when I pray. Or when I look very solemn. Or when I freak out in excitement. Or if I'm serving as a missionary. Or if I wear my What Would Jesus Do bracelet all the time. Or if I listen to Caleb and hymns all the time. The truth is that God does not respond to any of those things. It's all man-made and it's all flesh. What does he respond to? What is guaranteed? Humility and faith. <laughs> That's what he responds to. And guess what? Right now, I could, I could look at Jeremy and I could say, hey, he looks like he's humble, but I don't know. He could be in his mind thinking, I am the greatest human being ever. Look at my beautiful wife I have right next to me. I have succeeded in all my endeavors. I, am, I don't I have no need to even be here. I have no need for God. You know what? I, don't, I can't see any of that because it's invisible. And guess where God is? In the invisible. In the spirit. Humility describes a state of your spirit. Your invisible part. Your humility is showing. 
That doesn't matter, right? Faith is the same place. The faith is, it exists in the realm of invisible spiritual things. So when you're having humility and you're having faith before the Lord, you are diving into this invisible spiritual realm that's all around us in a successful way. That's the way to go there. That's the only thing you can do to connect with the invisible. All the other things I mentioned, oh, I'm going to wear my what would Jesus do bracelets and God, see? He's like, I'm invisible. I don't care. Are you humble? Are you really asking what would Jesus do? Jesus would die for you. (laughs) The truth is God does not respond to anything that is from our flesh because it is flesh and and he's looking for spiritual people. Look, look in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, um, Jesus is talking about this exact issue. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we're not to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, and now is when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you know and we what you don't know, and we worship uh, we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will what? Worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We can't have any idols. That's what he's saying. Worship in spirit and truth is the opposite of making a graven image. It's the opposite of making an idol. It's the seen versus the unseen. Is your relationship with God something you can see or is it unseen? Is it work versus faith? Are you focused on what you're doing for God or are you focused on what he did for you and believing what he did for you? Is it one is true and one is fake? One is real and one is religious. One is spirit and one is flesh. That's what Jesus is talking here. And he's saying God is seeking true worshipers, not fake fakers. You can quote me. God demands real relationship. That's the standard that we are going to fail. But Jesus is going to help us. God commands that we never use anything man-made in our worship, but only that which is supplied by the Holy Spirit himself. Okay? It, it's not like what, it's not what we like to hear. Excuse me. It's not what we like to hear. We want to bring something to the table. We want to control stuff. We want to feel worthy of being in God's presence. It even seems smart to think that way. It seems like wisdom. But look at Romans chapter 1. It looks like wisdom to say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try my hardest to get into God's presence. And I'm going to try so hard, I'm going to build this little picture of him. Look, God, what I did. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write a song for him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up watching TV. In Romans chapter 1, verse 22, it says, Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God. Wait, where's God at? He's in heaven and he's invisible, right? 
They're changing the glory of the incorruptible, invisible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. See, when we get into image-making and trying to see and sense what God is and, and what he's doing, we become, the Bible says, foolish. We become foolish. We cannot make an image of God because we have no idea what he looks like. So we create something less than God. Any image you make is lame compared to God himself. And you can make the Sistine Chapel. You could be that guy. What was his name? Michelangelo. One of the Ninja Turtles. But it falls so short of the real glory of God. And I've been to places all around the world where I'm like, wow, what a cool building. Wow. And it, it creates a uh, thing, but, but it's nothing compared to the glory of the incorruptible, invisible God. We are selling him short when we think an image can portray him. We create something less, we, something that we can understand, something more on our level when we get into images. It's, it's, it's frustrating to have a God that is so big you can't understand him. I mean, does he choose me or do I choose him? Lord, this is so frustrating. It is frustrating, but that's where you have to surrender to God. That's, if God, you guys have heard this quote before, if God was small enough for you to understand, he wouldn't be big enough for you to worship. I'll leave that there. It seems like a smart way, but it's not, because we actually miss out on the glory. When we're focused on things we can see and things we can sense, what we do is we shortchange ourselves and we miss out on who he really is and what he wants to actually pour into ourselves because all images are flawed. They all leave something to be desired. They all fail to measure up to the standard of beauty and perfection that God actually is. But yet we foolishly hold on to these images and we're afraid to give them up because the spirit is invisible and unknown to us. And so these images remain something that we hold on to and we, because we can sense them and we can see them and we choose to stay with the image even with all its flaws. Why do you think you go to your phone every single morning before you do anything else and check Facebook? Maybe you don't, but Kurt doesn't. You're more holy than us. We hold on to, a, to an image of something good. Oh, it's good to be connected. It's good to, 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 to Facebook. I have Facebook. I'm not saying I don't, but we go back to it and we're scared to give anything up because we get something from it and it's guaranteed, we feel like. And it's scary to say, I'm going to trust God for everything I was trusting Facebook for. I'm going to trust God for everything I was trusting Facebook for. Hmm. So we choose to stay with these images. And the most common image that we can idolize in our world today, they used to idolize cool architecture, and then before that they idolized idols. Today we idolize people, man itself. We look at men and think, he's pretty awesome. Celebrities, 
Hashtag American Idol. When God looks at man, he sees the most corrupt of all his creation. That's what I just said. He sees the only creature that resists his will in the entire universe. We're the only creature that says, I'm not going to do what you say. Which is sad because he made us to actually be the image bearers. He made us to be the images that we're trying so hard to produce ourselves. Remember Genesis chapter 1? God said, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So all of our creating of everything that we've ever made, we're trying to duplicate what God did when he made us. He made us in his image. He actually did a fine job. But we're not happy with that. We like to have other things. We want to have other things. But the fall into sin transformed us from a perfect image into a corrupted image, like breaking a pane of glass distorts the image, right? We're no longer compatible with the original operating system. The glory of God is now separated from us like iOS is separated from DOS. Right? They're different. Okay, I just want to run it by my IT guy. In other words, they're just, we're just incompatible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says this, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, which means it's incompatible, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the what? Image of God, should shine on them. So he says, believing faith is the software upgrade that brings us back to the glory of God, to being compatible with the invisible, wonderful thing that God is. Believing faith. The real deal connection with God himself. Not fake, wannabe, imitation, religious efforts. Oh, if you go like this, and if you go to confession, and if, or if you go to church, or if you do this, or if you do that, all of these things will get you in connection with God. No, it's all fake and imitation hypocrisy. The only thing that gets you to God is believing faith. Faith. So God gives us his own image after we messed up the first one. How great is that? So we go and screw up his plan, and he says, oh, I love you. Let me give you another image. And Jesus is the new image of God. And we don't have to make an image because one has already been supplied to us. We interact with Jesus. We talk to Jesus. We put our hope and trust in Jesus. Not a building, not a song, not, a, not an effort, not a work. He is our image of God. The perfect representation of God. We call this the Son of God. Not a carved image that we carved, but an image that carves his own image into our hearts. So instead of us trying to figure it out, he says, you just sit there and I'll do it in you. Not a man-made image, but a God-made image and perfect. Why settle for less than perfect? That's what we see with Jesus. He is better. Some people say, I'd like you to help me stop sinning. 
They come to me, they text me, they say, I need to give up my cell phone. As they text me. I need to stop this behavior. I need to stop drinking. I need to stop drugging. I need to stop anything. What, what do I do? And I said, just, I'll lead them down a path of not, I'm not going to talk to them about how dumb their stuff is. Okay? They already know. I'm going to talk to them about how glorious Jesus is. And I'm going to disciple them in the ways of Christ and how wonderful, wonderfully loving he is. And whatever the, whatever the sin is, you know what happens? They start to look like two very different things. You start to look like a perfect diamond of beauty and glory over here in Christ. And then over here, it's like, why am I holding on to this piece of trash? And, and, and this is heavy. And this is, it makes me smell weird. And I don't like this anymore but that only comes as our eyes are on christ as we're looking upon him and as we're abiding in him we're seeing his image of beauty and perfection and everything else starts to look disgusting like rubbish like trash like poop i don't know how more graphic i can get but that's what discipleship does that's what discipleship is it's not this is how you should live and walk no, it's this is what Jesus is and ha- what he's done for you, why he's so much better than everything in this world. So live your life like that. He is the treasure. He is the perfect image. And all of these things that we hold on to are just weighing us down. This is what the second commandment is about. So, in fact, we are commanded to not settle for less than the perfect image of Jesus Christ. That's what this command is for you. Do not settle for less than Jesus himself. Don't think that it's going to church. It's Jesus. If you come to church and you're not talking to Jesus, you have settled and you've broken the second commandment. If you wake up in the morning and you're not talking to Jesus, you're missing out. You're settling for less. So to review, I just want to review for us and we're nearly done. This command is that we must never use anything man-made as an image to worship God. This is using an idol. Even if we intend on worshiping the true God, images are the thing we focus our attention on and attach our hopes to. We break this command when we, uh, uh, when we set our attention and our hope on anything that is not our invisible God. If you're focused on the crucifix, oh, we got a picture of you know, Jesus hanging on the cross up here. It is an idol. If you're focused on a painting, it's an idol. If you're focused on your pastor, he's an idol. If you're focused on the worship team, they're an idol. If you're focused on a song, it's an idol. If you're focused on church building, if you're focused on your denomination, how about your plans, your strategies? We can idolize anything. We're good at it. The new covenant. This is now the end of our study. This is the most important part. We always bring it back. We've just taught law. This is the standard. You will all fail. But the new covenant, look at this wonderful thing. The new covenant installs Jesus as our image. We can look at him. We can look to him. We can connect with him and worship God by worshiping him. 
Look back at that verse we just looked at, 2 Corinthians. It says, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. An image back in the day was usually shiny. They would polish it up. And here we have, look at the, the light and brightness and shininess of this image, Jesus. Looking at Jesus in faith now is the way that we are that this command is fulfilled in our hearts. So we can sing the songs. We can go to church. We can have a pastor. We can have all these things as long as our hearts are focused on Jesus and not on the object itself. He saves us from this. Before Jesus came, they had no form. There was no form to the image of God only a voice. But now we have a form. Jesus is the form. He is the perfect image of God. Hebrews 12.2 says, looking unto Jesus, looking unto him, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Where do we have to look if we're looking at Jesus? The verse just said, where do we look? Huh? Right? He is in heaven, sitting at the throne of God. Can you do that if you're looking at something here on the earth that is seen? No. Lifting our eyes to Jesus in humility and faith is a spiritual reality, not a physical one. And all the things we're experiencing, oh, this chair is not very comfy. This church is weird. This pastor is ugly. All these things you're experiencing in reality, vivid, is they're not the reality of Jesus. And when we lift our eyes to him in faith, we have the experience that we're actually looking for. But there's one part of Jesus that we can see and feel and interact with today. Do you know what that is? His body. What? Matthew 25, 40, Jesus is telling a parable and he says, and the king will answer and say to them, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So our actions of love and service for for church, for the church, are acceptable forms of worship as well. You can't just ignore the people of God around you and become some super spiritual saint. (gasps) Don't talk to me, I'm in the invisible That's not how it works. Jesus said, you keep your heart on me and you love the people around you to death. You love them. You serve them. What you do has consequences. And this is where we're going to, I'm going to just teach you briefly what the last part of this part, this verse was in Exodus that kind of was confusing. He says, I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those that love me and keep my commands. When we choose to break this command and we become fake religious Christians, we're not truly spiritual. We create little disciples of fakeness. That's what he's saying here. He's not saying he punishes children because their parents were idiots. He's saying idiot parents create idiot children. That's what happens. And our children learn by our example that God is just an idol that needs to be impressed. 
Kids, we go to church and we dress this way. Why? Because we impress God and we impress God's people. As opposed to, kids, we go to church because God is invisible and we worship him in the spirit. And then the people that are there, we serve them and love them. Why? Because they are part of his body. That will create different types of kids. They will go two different directions. Our children learn by example that either God is an idol that needs to be impressed, which will lead to our children hating God, this says, or they will learn that God is a God of mercy and he's real and the only image of God is Jesus and that will, will produce love. Even the world looks at Jesus and says, yeah, that guy was pretty cool. See, he's, he's got it, man. When we keep this command, worshiping God in the spirit and truth and humility and faith mark our lives. We aren't fake. We're not trying to impress by efforts, but rather we're faithful to his word and trusting what he says. That's what marks us. We accept his grace and his mercy and his word promises. To the hum- We just see it because we're humble. We're like, God, I'm just going to trust your word. Our children then learn what God is really like, that they don't have to impress him with vain efforts, but simply come to him in humility because we're apologizing to our children all the time, saying, ah, I sinned. I should not have treated you that way. I should not have raised my voice to you. I should not have done that. knowing that God sees all our sin and all our shortcoming, when they see us coming to God openly and humbly, it will, produce, it will do so much more in their life than any rules ever could. Amen? So in this new covenant, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, and we're set free from having to impress God with man-made objects or efforts. We're set free from placing our hope and our attention on things in this world and we place Jesus as the image of God in our hearts. It, he is the light and glory that will transform us from the inside out. And he, what does he transform us into? His very image again. So at the very end, we end up back how we were at the Garden of Eden where we are restored back into the image bearer of God where we walk around with the same heart of God that Adam and Eve could have we become like him as we abide in him by humility and faith. And in the end, all our idolizing in our hearts is done away with because God is no longer far away. We are brought near to him through our wonderful image of Jesus. We're no longer separated from his glory, but we're invited to truly be satisfied by the gift of God's grace. So would you guys stand with me?